Hey, would you stand to your feet? We're going to be in Luke. We're back in our RX series, which is God's prescription for abundant living, and we are going to be in Luke 15. I'm going to read this up front because we're going to go through. Uh, this is a time where Jesus told three different stories. Uh, they called them parables about three different lost things or people, all to make, uh, all to drive home really one main point about how much Jesus cares about the lost. And this one is the most well-known in the prodigal son. So we'll pick up in verse 11 of chapter 15 of Luke. <clears throat> and Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. The father did. Now, not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into the far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything that he had, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, or when he came to his right mind, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? So what I'll do is I'll arise and I'll go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just treat me as one of your hired servants. So he practices his speech and he says, this is how life's gotten. This is what I deserve. This is all I deserve. This is what I'll say. And then he followed it up by getting up and going to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran to him and embraced him and kissed his son. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf that we've been saving and kill it and let us eat and let us celebrate. For this is my son who was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found and they began to celebrate. You can be seated. Father, such a simple story, God, and one that, that even people that don't know you or don't even claim to be Christians have, have probably heard. Uh, and we've all felt at one point in our life like we're this person, uh, son or daughter, that we've wandered off. And we've wanted to come home and there's been a rift between us and someone else or more importantly between us and you and sometimes we don't know how to come home. We put up such a wall, Lord, we don't know how to take it down anymore and that's what this simple story is all about, God. So I pray especially for those who have put up a wall and uh, Father, who are sitting here maybe going through the motions or sitting here and saying, this is where I need to be and, and this is the place to bring the wall down, but I still don't know how to do it. Tear down those walls today, Lord. Uh, bring back children who have wandered off. Help them to know that they must completely turn around and that you'll be waiting in open arms. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, I, I think, gang, most of us, we watch the news uh, or read it online uh, know what kind of news the media is going to go for, right? Well, let me quiz you here. Are they going to put out for ratings good news or bad news? Good news, raise your hands. How many of you think it's good news? All right, you guys are sharp. Bad news? That's true. That's what they're going to put out. Bad news sells. Uh, you know, I forget the saying. I hope I don't butcher it, but I th here it is. Good news is, or, or bad news, a lie, can travel all the way around the world before the truth has gotten out of bed and put its boots on. Something like that. Have you ever heard that? You're like, I've heard it 
not butchered like that, but I've heard, I've heard that. Basically, it takes so long for the truth to get started. People really aren't that interested. It's, it's not salacious. It's not juicy enough. It's not a sexy enough story. But the lie, we, we have magazines dedicated to that. We have whole TV shows dedicated to gossip. We love a good lie. We love bad news. People love to panic. People love a good scandal. True or not, doesn't matter. It makes no difference. Over the years, I have seen an alarming increase in stories um, in this particular bad story. I'm going to come down and see if you guys are awake. <laughs> Since we got teenagers in the front row, this is a story about teenagers. It's not a good one. Uh, so I guess I'm fostering that bad story myth kind of a thing. But I, I've seen a large number of stories of kids who want nothing to do with their parents. And though their parents have given them all kinds of things, tried to give them the, the, the so-called good life that America talks about, they don't care about their parents. They don't care about getting to know them or relating to them or anything. They just want the stuff. And so some kids have gone far enough to hire people to kill their parents so that they can have the stuff. Now, what's the most famous or well-known case about that? It happened probably a good decade ago. Uh, brothers, anybody remember? The Menendez brothers, right? They, uh, their, their father was a wealthy producer, TV movie producer um, in Hollywood. They're living in Beverly Hills. They were spoiled brats. I mean, they really had everything they wanted. But the thing is, they wanted the stuff. They wanted the good life. They wanted all of it, not some of it, all of it. Everything they had coming to them. The problem was their parents were still alive. So they were only going to get tidbits until the parents were gone. So they decided to make it look like a robbery <clears throat> and to kill their parents. And they literally snuck up behind them on their watch and TV one day with a shotgun and killed their own parents. And then they proceeded to go off and travel around the country and spend money and buy $20,000, $30,000 watches and have parties and stuff. And that all lasted a couple of months before they were nailed. And I look at this story here, and I think it's, it's really the same thing. Throwing their lives away in sin and wasteful living, want, wanting nothing to do with the relationship with their parents. Just wanted the stuff. The word prodigal, anybody know what it means? The word prodigal actually means wasteful. Wasteful. I, I'd learned that years ago, but I kind of forgot. The wasteful son is how we would say it. That's what the prodigal is. He isn't, I mean, we think it means wandering, the prodigal, the one that wandered off and got lost, but it means the wasteful one. That's the main thing that God wants you to focus on, the fact that he just wasted stuff, his life, his money. And the coldest, most hateful thing about the wasteful son was that he wanted a vending machine dad, but not a dad. He wanted to figure out some way, how can I just basically put my coins in and get everything, squeeze you dry of the stuff that you can give me, but have nothing to do with you. I don't care about you. I want the stuff from you, Dad, but I definitely don't want a relationship with you, Dad. The parable of the prodigal son. Let me read that first couple of verses again. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, give me my share of the property coming to me, and he divided the property between them. That just gets us into the story, and we read that, and maybe we blow by that. But gang, this is a pretty shocking statement in this culture. Uh, it's a more shocking request than you might think at first glance. Because it's tantamount to saying to his father, to his face. Let me, can I say it another way? Maybe it'll make sense. Dad, we got a problem here. I mean, I really want to make something of my life. And exactly what I want to do requires a lot of funding. You have it, and I don't care about you. So, Dad, look me in the eye. This is how it's going to work. Is there any way you could just die? I want you dead. That's what he said. No, no, Pastor, I read it. He said, can I have my share of the inheritance early? 
No, he said, I wish you were dead. Because see, in that culture, you couldn't get your inheritance. You couldn't touch it. Everybody knew it until your parents passed on, until your father passed on. And then mostly it would go to the elder son, about two-thirds of it, and you would get a third uh, to the younger son. So he's not even getting the biggest part of it. But he wants what he's got coming to him. And he's going, the only thing standing in my way is a person. It's my father, who seems to want different things out of my life, or out of his life, than I want out of my life. I just want stuff. I want all the benefits that come with being your child, uh, but none of the relationship. Gang, look up here just a minute. Isn't that the way that it goes with much of Christianity? Is, is it just me, or, or isn't that kind of the way it goes with a lot of American evangelicalism? You pick on that a lot, Pastor Rob. I pick on it a lot because I just don't see it happening that much in other countries. I mean, I've been on a lot of mission trips. When I go to other countries, I don't see this desire to get all the stuff from God, but not God. Well, I don't really see that in America. Don't you? Don't you? We want the get out of hell free card from God, but not God. I want to be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous, and popular too. Throw that in, God. I, I just don't want you. Is there any way to get that stuff? Is there any end around? Do we have to have a relationship with you? That just cramps my style. That just ruins everything. I really don't want that. By the way, maybe some of you are thinking, Christianity or Christians aren't like that. I heard from the, the kind of the snickering out front that the youth get it. And then, well, the teenagers get it. They've already seen that. Maybe some of you are going, well, I don't think it's really like that. Really? I'm going to prove to you that it is, and it's not going to be fun, especially if you're one of them. How much do you think the health, wealth, and prosperity crowd actually knows about Jesus? And who's the health, wealth, and prosperity crowd? An awful lot of American evangelical churches are this crowd. The crowd that teaches that God shows you he loves you by giving you stuff and making you perfectly healthy. If you aren't healthy, then you don't have big enough faith. If you don't have a lot of stuff, you don't have big enough faith. If your life isn't a cakewalk, then Jesus isn't with you. It's health, wealth, and prosperity. Only problem with that doctrine, it's not in the Bible. Anywhere. Now, God does bless his children and he does love them, but that end around is dangerous and it's not in the Bible. I mean, it's amazing we can build whole churches on something that's not in the Bible. Not in there. So, but pastor, you said you were going to prove it. I did and I will. Most, did you know, and you don't have to show your hands, I'll just tell you. We are living in the most biblically illiterate generation in the history of the world. The most biblically illiterate generation in the history of the world. We're, we're also, we're living in the most illiterate generation, period. I mean, there was, a, I watched these men on the street think some of them are political, some of them are religious, and uh, they just went to uh, one of the, the well-known universities um, and did a man on the street basically asking two questions. One was, name one U.S. senator. And this university, I forget the name of it, I think it was something like American University or something, something political. And they were asking political science majors, name one U.S. senator. Guess how many people they interviewed named one U.S. senator? One. One person named him. And then they followed it up. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to challenge you. I'm going to follow up. Front row, I'm going to follow up with you. Ready? What's the name of the theme song for the movie Frozen? Let it go. Let it go. Let it go. Every single person they asked got that right. Every single college student they asked 100% knew the song 
the theme song to Frozen. So they can log that away for their future and for getting a job. They didn't know one U.S. center. Now we go to college campuses and we go to Christian schools and we go to church crowds and we interview and we ask them simple questions about the Bible and this is frightening. I was talking about somebody who said, God's called me in a ministry. I've been saved for a long time. I'm fired up. I want to be a missionary. really want to give everything. And I was saying, you know, where some of the countries, some of the things you want to go to, it could be persecution and you need to stand strong. You need to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And he's like, who? Let's back up a little bit, shall we? Perhaps you're not ready to go off on a European vacation. You know, Daniel's friends, remind me again about Daniel. Daniel and the lion's den. Oh, I think I've heard that one. Okay, let's back up. You're not ready. You're not ready to tell people about Jesus because I'm not sure you've met him. And so there's biblical, there are questions. People were asked, who is Joan of Arc? The wife of Noah was the most common answer. The wife of Noah. Some of you are going, is that wrong? Is that, is that? Let me check real quick. Did they name Noah's? By the way, that's wrong. That's wrong. So we're living in a biblically illiterate generation, whereas the average household will have six, seven, eight Bibles. And man, if you count the Bibles, the U version, and all that you have on your iPhones and your Samsungs and your iPads and and physical Bibles too. I mean, I've got three Bibles up here. My timer one, my iPad, and my, my, my one that I always have with my physical one with pages. Three, most households have about eight Bibles, and yet they can't answer most basic questions about the Bible. So one of the most, what, the fastest growing form of evangelicalism, and, and I would say a, a false form of Christianity is, is the one that teaches in the health, wealth, and prosperity. And yet they don't know the God that they say is going to make them healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. Listen, can you be blessed by God as one of his children if you've never met him and you don't know him? Obviously not. This disconnect is really what this parable is all about. So let's keep going. Proving, by the way, gang, like I said I would, that we want God's stuff, but we don't want God. Because gang, if you have a relationship with him, you kind of know him. You're getting to know him. And if you don't know him or even the most basic things about his word, then I'm saying you just want his stuff. Well, here's what God did. Here's how the father, by the way, that represents God the father, reacted. He divided his property between them. He gave it to him. The father graciously fulfilled the request, giving him his full portion, which would have been one-third of the entire state, like I said. So the ungrateful, unloving son sets off for the good life. And for a while, gang, he seems to find it. Verse 13, how many days later the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And that would give you the sense that it says not a, a little while later, you might think, well, if this guy wanted to go so bad, why didn't he leave the next day? Well, he's got to cash it in. I mean, it would have been in the form of cattle. It would have been in the form of, of, of a lot of different things that he's just going to take the money. He just wants money. So he cashes everything in and gets money, gold, whatever, and he takes that with him that he can carry on a journey. And he starts living the good life. And for a while, he thinks, I made the right decision. I'm not, he's not cramping my style. The rules aren't there anymore. I don't have to get to know him. He's so old-fashioned. I've got lots of friends. I've got lots of money. And every time I've got money to spend, there's lots of friends around. My friends are increasing. My money's going down a little bit. No problem, because my friends love me. They'll probably give me a job or help this good life continue, I'm sure, because they're real and they're genuine. So he's living this good life, and everything seems great. He's healthy and plenty to eat. 
lots of friends, lots of partying, verse 14. And when he had spent everything, which happens a lot, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out. Now, I find this curious here. He goes and hires himself out and in the Jewish culture, feeding pigs, that would have been the foulest, dirtiest animal. The point here is he's willing to sink awfully low rather than think of going back and saying, I was wrong. How far are we willing to go? What's the bottom for you? Because I'm going to tell you, before you hit bottom and you can't look anywhere else, you're not going to look up. So this guy obviously hasn't hit the bottom yet. Hires himself out. One of the citizens of that country, a Gentile, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And at the time he's feeding pigs, he's not getting enough to eat himself. He's looking at the pig food and going, I wish I just had that. But nobody gave him anything. Nobody gave him anything. I thought he had a lot of friends. Well, the money ran out. And apparently his friends were connected with the stuff. Now, where'd they learn that philosophy? It's the same one that he had. They've come from the same kind of background he has. One thing I've noticed about pig slop that maybe you haven't is pig slop satisfies. Write that down. That's beautiful, isn't it? <laughs> apparently it's true. Pig slop satisfies. And pig slop comes in many forms. It can be, and by the way, these things aren't bad, but they can turn into pig slop pretty quickly. Career, money, goods, toys, trinkets, gadgets. If you're trying to find fulfillment or satisfaction in the wrong things, it's pig slop. And you'll thirst again. In fact, it'll make you thirsty pretty fast. The Lord is the only one who will truly satisfy that thirst deeply, eternally. But you know who does realize the emptiness of chasing stuff? It's weird. We don't get it. This prodigal guy doesn't get it. And he's now feeding pigs and he still doesn't quite get it. He's going to get it pretty quickly here. But you know who knows it all along? Of course God does. Of course Jesus does. He knows all along that's not going to satisfy. That's not going to cut it for you. And since the father in this parable represents God the father, the question arises, or at least it did for me, why would he give him all this stuff so that he can go chase stuff? Why would he give him that money so he can go make the biggest mistake of his life? That's the question. That's the biggest question in this parable. You answer that, then you'll get what Jesus wants you to get out of this. Then this will have been worth it. So why would God allow us to go after things that are ultimately going to ruin us? Why, why would he even let us chase that stuff? Well, one word. Love. Love. And I know you're probably sitting there going, that doesn't seem real loving. Well, think of it this way, gang. Love that is coerced, love that is forced is not love at all. If you ever saw that old movie that I mean that old TV show that they tried to make into a movie that bombed in both ends The Stepford Wives any of you ever see that guys admit it any guys ever see that you ever kind of like well there's some good in that pastor no we're not going to go down that the Stepford Wives are robot wives program wives drug wives they don't have a free will they just do everything their husband wants and their perfect little wife well that's not love and believe it or not you don't want that and God doesn't want that from his children because coerced love is not love at all. The younger son gang did not love the father and he wasn't about to. You get that, right? Living at his home, having good things, but under those rules, he wasn't about to love his father. It wasn't going to change in that environment at all. In fact, he'd live his whole life hating him 
and he would die hating him and not really knowing him, not with any true relationship because he would just be a biological son, but they would have no real relationship. And so this father must know something. And it's love that gives him his inheritance early and says, go out there. Go out there and learn something that'll change you permanently for the better. And it seems cruel. I call it tough love. It's actually the deepest kind of love he could have shown. The only way that he could see the Father clearly was by looking heavenward. Now, listen, gang, have you ever noticed how a lot of people will only look up when they've hit rock bottom? You ever notice that? I mean, you're looking all around you for different solutions, and you're looking below you for different solutions. You will not look up at God because you've already decided, I don't want anything to do with him. He cramps my style, and then, boom, you hit the bottom. There's nowhere else to go, so you can't look down. You're on the floor, and you can't look to the side. You've fallen into a pit. Your only hope is finally up. And when you look up, there's a connection that's made that you couldn't make before, that you couldn't make until you hit rock bottom. So all of a sudden, whoever caused you to fall into that pit may not be so bad, may not be that bad of a God after all. In fact, let me put it to you this way, and I don't want you to answer, I just want you to think about it. If rock bottom is the only thing that will ever get you to see God, if the valley is truly the only path to the mountaintop, is rock bottom the worst thing that could ever happen to you or me? Think about it. Is it really the worst thing? Pastor, you don't know where my life is right now. I am on rock bottom. I can't get any worse. I am absolutely at the end. Well, what have you done with God? If you're really at the end, have you reached up to him? Well, he hates me, or he wouldn't let this happen. Have you reached out to him? No, because he hates me and he would. Why don't you ask why this is happening? Is there something bigger than you having the good life? And by the way, God's not against that. He may give you health. I mean, if you're sitting here right now, you probably pretty much have it. He might give you wealth. You're in America, then you have more than 98% of the world anyway. Prosperous, popularity, whatever. He may give you that, but that's not connected and automatic. He's after the relationship, not just giving you stuff. He doesn't want to be your genie. He doesn't want to be your vending machine. He wants to be your God. So, again, if rock bottom is the only thing that will ever get you to see God, could it be a good thing? This is why James says, count it all joy, brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And and it ends up saying, God will have his perfect will and you'll be perfect. Not like Jesus, but on this, I mean, like Jesus, not perfect and sinless, but in this world, Mature and complete. And what gets you there, according to James? Trials. Now that mankind has chosen sin, here we are in this deal, through Adam, and we're born in sin, and we reiterate it, put our stamp of approval on it, by repeating sin, God's first and foremost goal then becomes for us to be reconciled with him. Listen, if you're breathing right now, you're a sinner. You're born in sin. It's transferred from Adam to us. And now, because we're sinners, God says, my one goal for you as my child made in my image is to bring you home and to get you remaking in the image of my son. You've wandered away. I want to bring you back. That's my goal now. That's my number one goal for you, to adopt you and to relate with you. And if anything else is counterfeit or even looks like that, that's not me. That's not a goal that I have. I want to reconcile. I want something real. I want to save you. And he came for that. And he offered his own son. That's how much he cares for you for that. He didn't come to condemn you. It doesn't even fit. In fact, even if we think that, look at how these 
verses are couched together just so that we won't think that. Most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. And then right after that, in case you're thinking, well, sometimes I feel judged. I think God just came to judge. John 3, 17 says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. It's almost as though he knew as soon as he told you about his great love that you wouldn't buy it. You'd think there's gotta be a catch. Maybe you're really gonna judge me. He goes, no, no, I didn't come to judge, but in order that the world might be saved through him. He's covered all that. In fact, here's something that I think might help. And I just did that this week. I don't know, I've never done this before. But have you ever pictured what would be like if the prodigal son's life would have gone differently? Have you ever done that? Let's, let's do it now. Let's say the prodigal son wanders off and goes and he buys friends and they all gather around him and they like him and he meets a young gal and marries her and invests his money and makes more money and gets a good job and he's pretty powerful and works out at the finest clubs and he's very healthy and he's popular and he's prosperous and as he gets a little bit older, he's getting more rich and getting more false friends, but he thinks that they're real. His wife's getting to the point where he'd like a younger, better looking one, so he trades her in. Then about 10 years later, he trades her in. He's on his third wife now, but she's looking great and he's high up in the status in the eyes of everybody else. In fact, he's done so much good. He's given so much back, so much to charity. They built a library in his honor, a public library. Name it after him. And when he gets older, he gets a little bit feeble. In fact, he gets 90 years older. He's really, he's pretty chipper for a 90-year-old person. He doesn't really, he doesn't have cancer, doesn't have anything riddling his body. And one night he goes to sleep and he dies peacefully in his sleep. That's not such a bad story, right? Looks like he was right. He took all the stuff, didn't want a relationship from his father and took it all, all and wandered off and said, I hate you and I could care less about you and I'm gonna live the good life. And look, it worked. And now he's on his deathbed and drifts peacefully off into what? Into a Christless eternity, forever separated from God in a very real place that Jesus talked about more than he talked about heaven called hell. And last time I checked, hell is still very hot and eternity forever is still a long time. So is that a good trade-off? I mean, we look at the story and we go, wow, look at, what, look at what the father allowed or look what he did. Is this a great idea? Look at the horror of his life, but at least he came back. Well, listen, what if he didn't? What if he went on to live the good life without God, which seems to be the goal of a lot of Christians in America? Let me just live the good life without God. Let me just get his stuff. Let me figure out how to do an end around so I don't have to have a relationship with him. And you enter a Christless eternity where you've been saying your whole life, my will be done. Not thy will, but my will. And in the end, as you stand before him, he said, somewhere along the line, I said, okay. Your will be done instead of mine. And now for the rest of eternity, your will will continue to be done. And you'll live separate from me. I'm just asking, which scenario is really more cruel? Let's keep going, verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? And I perish here with hunger, so I'm gonna get up, I'm gonna go to my father, and I'm gonna say, Father, I'm gonna rehearse this. I I've sinned flat out against heaven, against you. I don't wanna be called your son anymore. I'm not worthy, I'm not asking for that. Treat me as a slave. 
So he rose up with his speech to go to his father, but while he was still a long way off. I want to concentrate on that sin, gang. I mean, on that phrase, I have sinned. Because we love it. That's a popular saying. The phrase appears eight times in the Bible. I'm going to give you the first four. Because they're a little different. Well, not really the first four. The, the, the bad ones. You ready? I have sinned, said Pharaoh. Exodus 9.27. Write it down. Exodus 9.27. Pharaoh actually said, I've sinned. That's pretty good, isn't it? Except he kept on sinning. He, sin he said, I have sinned. I've treated the, the Jews bad. They can go worship their God. They can take off for three days and worship, come back. I have sinned. But he changed his mind. I have sinned, said Balaam the prophet. But he kept doing what he was doing. I have sinned, said Saul. But he kept doing what he was doing. I have sinned, said Judas. And he regretted it. But he didn't repent. Know what all these have in common? They acknowledge their sin, but they don't repent. It's the R word. That's like worse than any curse word in our society, period. But I have sinned. It's gaining in popularity. To say I have sinned is actually, I've done wrong, man, I messed up. All the, it's really popular right now. Just don't add the R word. That's like a curse word. There's examples of this modern I have sinned thing in, in modern culture. And you get the, the idea that it may be, and I'm going to be careful here because I just want to give you examples so you know this is real. Even with religious people, Jimmy Swaggart said the phrase in tears, I have sinned. Crocodile tears coming down. Three or four years later, he's caught doing the same thing. You know what I call this? I got a name for it. You might have imagined that. Wait, let me do something first. Just bear with my ADD personality. You ever see these deals in the supermarket? They're cosmetic disasters. Here's one. Let's look at a couple of them. Let's get them up here. This is Meg Ryan. She thought a little bit of tweaking would be good. All right, let's, let's look. So she tweaks a little bit. And I'm not picking on Meg Ryan, because I don't have to. Just look. But let's look at the next one. This is the same person. I, Michael Jackson, who over the years just kept going and just kept going and just kept going. And, and actually, within two years of that second photo, they're still denying they had any plastic surgery. I'm, I'm not sure that that was an improvement. Keep going. I'm not sure who this is. Um, this is does anybody know who that is? It's supposed to be a famous person, a model. But, I mean, I, I, who cares about my opinion? But I'm, I'm, I can tell a little bit. I'm looking, I'm thinking, I think it looks better on the left than the... The right. Maybe it's just me. Anybody else? Do we have any other ones? These get more. Is that the last one? All right. I thought we had one more hideous one, but I think, I think uh, actually Mario got scared of it. <laughs> so I can't even look at it, Pastor Rod. Do I have to put that up there? Um, show of hands. Who thinks they look better with the plastic surgery? <laughs> show of hands. Who thinks they look better without? Put your hands up. Wow. Worst wins, hands down. I mean, hands down. You can put your hands down. I call this false repentance, cosmetic repentance. Think about it. Cosmetic repentance. Its only real purpose is that we think it might make us look better. Truth is, we usually look worse. No, no, no. We always look worse with cosmetic repentance. We all learn it as little children. It's the proverbial hand in the cookie jar deal. 
Ever seen a little kid who you said, listen, those cookies are for dessert? They're maybe five years old. I don't want you to touch, Johnny, the, the cookies until later. Then you can have a couple, but don't. So you look in the cookie jar later, and it was full, and now there's three left. And Johnny's got chocolate all over his face. I mean, we used to say this to our kids and my, my son sitting down in front. We used to tell him, which I'm thinking right, we used to tell him when he was little that we'd catch him and stuff like this, and he'd be like, how do you know? Chocolate all over his face and stuff. And I would say, lift up your tongue. Do you remember that, Nathan? Let me see underneath your tongue. And we would pretend underneath your tongue, you could, there's a color code that tells us if you're lying. Okay, lift your tongue. You're lying. Wow, again it showed up on that? It just dawned on me, Nathan, that for all those years, we were lying <laughs> because there's no color code on there. So I, I repent of that. I apologize. Uh, but gang, here's, you ever seen a little kid just stand there, chocolate all over their face? Did you eat a cookie? No? You sure? Because they were chocolate. I didn't, I didn't eat one, Mommy. What's that on your face? I don't know. My sister put it there. <laughs> I mean, just all this stuff that we will say, but we lie. We learn it early. Now, consider these four. I have sinned, said Job. Did he? Wow. I mean, I mean he actually never cursed God. Never did. He, he actually didn't. I have sinned, said Achan, and he paid a heavy price for that, Joshua 7, 20. I have sinned, said David, Psalm 51 is all about that. I have sinned, said the prodigal. Now, how are they different? Each one of them repented. It's not enough, gang, just to say the words, I have sinned. They're just words. You know, it seems Hollywood has cornered the market on this. They also have another type of repentance. This is the second one that I've named called the press release repentance. Politicians are really good at this as well. It happens when we need to counter some bad news or a stupid tweet that we put out, right? Put something out and all of a sudden it starts blowing up and we go, in fact, here's one I wrote down. A press release repentance. I'm not gonna tell you who it is because it could be generic. Here's from a million people. I deeply regret the pain and suffering that my thoughtless words cause so many. People who know me know that I am not that kind of person, just oh so sorry. I think you are that kind of person. You're not sorry. You're just trying to save your career. You've been caught trying to save your career. Not familiar with this? Don't worry now, guys. Give it an hour. There's probably one going on right now, and you'll hear about it. Somebody will say something and then have to go into press release repentance in order to try to fix it. Gang, it happened two days ago. Two words, Gwyneth Paltrow. Right? Am I right? Of course, she opens her mouth and almost always has to take it back. But here it is. Here's what she said. I think women who have jobs who work nine to five have it so much easier than I do. Okay, she's getting a little bit of pushback from that, as you can imagine. Now, I haven't seen the press release repentance yet from her, but mark my words, it's coming. It's coming. She's going to put something out. Now, my question here is, I don't know her heart, but is this real repentance or is this, uh-oh, my career's tanking. Let me put something out so they know I don't really think that way, even though I do. And I'm probably going to keep thinking that way. I've got to save my career. Cosmetic repentance and press release repentance aren't repentance at all. They're not. True repentance takes place at the point the sinner, like the prodigal, changes direction and heads back to the father. That's it. Back to the father. His father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned before you. Here it is. I have sinned. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Listen, 
You ever have a speech prepared for God and you feel like he's not hearing you and you really are sorry? God, I have sinned. I, are you listening, God? God, are you hearing me? Things have gone from bad to worse in your life and it almost feels like God's out to get you. Sure you have. I've been there. Listen, your Heavenly Father loves you. He's never out to get you. He's not getting some cheap laughs out of the pain and suffering that we go through in our life. However, when our own sin and rebellion is what is actually ruining our lives and the lives of those around us, counterfeit repentance isn't going to impress God. So some of you have seen your own sin and your own addiction and your own stuff ruin your life and then you just keep throwing up this counterfeit or cosmetic repentance to God and you say, God, you're not listening. You don't care. And he's saying, you don't mean it. Because if you did, you'd turn around. You're saying, I'm sorry, as you go in there and pick up the needle. You're saying, I'm sorry, as you smoke it again. Saying, I'm sorry, as you look at the pornography. You're saying, I'm sorry, and you keep meeting with that woman who's not your wife. Keep saying, I'm sorry, and you keep stealing. That's cosmetic. That's press release. That sometimes works with humans. It doesn't work with God. I think God just sits there and says, I love you, but you haven't hit rock bottom. When you do, I'll be waiting with open arms. And it's going to be a great day. Until then, you're going to keep feeding me false repentance. Gang, I believe with all of my heart, had Judas Iscariot not gone to that tree and gotten that rope and put it around his neck and hung himself, that he could have gone to Jesus and said, what have I done? I have sinned. I'm coming to you. Is there any chance? Yeah. If you go to the Father and you confess your sins, 1 John 1, 9 says he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So he would have been saved. So he felt incredible remorse and incredible regret and saw that what he had done is ruining his life and the life of those around him and the Son of God's going to a cross because of him. And he said, the only solution is to take myself out of the picture. That's pretty big remorse, but it's not repentance. It's not repentance. In fact, that's something even beyond cosmetic or press release. When we sin, he isn't after a press release. He isn't trying to get it on the record. I'm glad you acknowledge that. I'll make a note of that. He's not interested in that. He's interested in a change of direction, heading the other way, away from the sin toward him. That's what he's interested in. Know what proves this son is really repentant? There's one thing. What proves he's really repentant is he's turned from his sin and he's headed back to the father. But the father said to his servants, bring quick, I love this because the son's got this speech that he, and he means it, but the father's already seen him coming home. That's enough. This is real because he's coming to me. He's not going after that sin anymore. He's left that far country and the land of sin and all those people and everything about it and he's coming home. I already know it's real. So he starts his speech and the father doesn't let him finish. That tells you he's not after your speech. And he's not after your words. He's after your heart. He wants you to come home again. The father quickly said to his servants, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet. Now here's where the blessing comes in. Here's where the health, wealth, and prosperity, it, it is there. Yes, he wants to bless you when he gets your heart. When you come home and he's got your heart, he's after the relationship first, not making your life a cakewalk so that you comfortably ease into hell, but a relationship with him. And then like a child, who doesn't want to give their children good things? But if he's just a vending machine to you, you're in danger. 
My son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Began to celebrate. And even so, Scripture says, all of heaven rejoices when even one sinner does what? Comes home. In other Scriptures it says, when a sinner repents. It sounds to me like that's the same thing as coming home. Repentance and coming home. Repentance and turning from your sin to the Father is the same thing. Turn away from it. Turn towards God. It's so common that even here this morning, I'm wondering, you know, maybe somebody's sitting here right now and need to come home. Maybe you're going to listen to this podcast and you need to come home. If that's you, know this. That's all God's waiting for. Your father waits for you with open arms. No matter what you've done or how far you've wandered off, you can come home again. Father, thank you for how much you love us, God. Thank you this morning that clearly in your word, whether we want to hear it or not, Father, you will let us wander off as far as it takes, as long as it takes, until we hit that place that is rock bottom, God. And that's good for us. And that's love, Lord. So when we hit rock bottom, we can finally look up and making a connection with you is what this life is all about. And deepening that connection is what this life is all about. And anything that represents an end around, stuff, people, popularity, good health, looking younger, all of that, Lord, may it be damned, God, if it causes us to miss you. Because if it does, we'll be damned, Lord. God, what a simple message. And of all the parables and the stories you told about loss, this one should hit home the most. God, I pray if anybody is sitting here today and, and is the prodigal, may they have the courage to let go. And God, they don't have to defeat everything in this turn, Lord. They just have to turn from it right now, ask you near their heart, and then when they have you, you will help them break those chains. God, help us, I pray, to give generously to this mission, Lord, and build your church. Help us to care enough about the prodigals that are out there, Lord, to invite them to your house not only for Easter, but every week as we build your kingdom in Jesus' name. Amen.